Pradesh. And who's the guest we have with us to, to talk about this important subject? The guest that we have brought on is Nick Carter, who is the host of the Twitter Spaces. Uh, apparently, it was supposed to be just a casual Twitter space. But in this crazy world of the 2020s, in casual Twitter spaces, presidents of countries show up while, <laughs> while bills are going through the Congress to put, make Bitcoin legal tender. So apparently that's things, things like this happen in the, in the 20s. And so we are bringing Nick Carter on to uh, not only talk about that crazy event and, and Twitter spaces as like a news media publication at large, but also more importantly, an entire country. Um, putting Bitcoin as its legal tender currency. Um, the Bitcoiners of the world are up in arms about how awesome this is. Uh, Nick, uh, Nick used this uh, term that I, when I was listening to him uh, talk on maybe his own podcast about how Bitcoin is being used as its intended purpose. And I think the intended purpose line is, is interesting to drill into because who's to say what Bitcoin is actually intended for? Uh, so I want to get Nick's perspective on that. Uh, and then on the other side of things, there's a, a different cohort of people who are a little bit skeptical as to like what this is. This really the big deal that we that the Bitcoiners say it is. And so we want to take on both sides of the of the of the news event on this uh, state of the nation. Suffice it to say, Nick Carter is probably our favorite Bitcoiner. Would you say that, David? Yeah. Our favorite Bitcoiner? I Absolutely. Mean, like, how many times has Nick been on the show? Uh, this this number... will be number four. Second podcast. He's been on two podcasts, and this is his second State of the Nation. Number four. All right. So he's earned his bankless t-shirt, but like Nick is the person to talk to you about this subject. I think the first half of this conversation, we plan to talk mostly about the good side of this. Um, all of like the the reason that this is a perfect fit for Bitcoin. In the second half, we're going to talk more about the critiques. Uh, super excited for that conversation. But David, before we get in, we got to talk about what's new. We are still looking for our perfect bankless editor. If that is you, if you're an editor, if you're a writer, if you like DeFi, if you want to join the bankless team, we've seen tons of applications. We're looking for the perfect one. But email your resume, sample of your writing is more important your Twitter personality, whatever you have, do applications at banklesshq.com. Do that. David and I review those uh, on a weekly basis or so, and uh, we're excited to hear from you if that's you. Also, David, got to talk about Ledger. Ledger's doing some cool stuff in the space. Hey, I put out this meme. This is me. Not all the memes on Bankless HQ are mine, but like I was thinking of this as I was using my Ledger the other day. <laughs> this is like your grandpa's non-custodial wallet was just like a pot full of gold, yeah, right? Gold bur coins. Buried gold coins. <laughs> but what is yours? I mean, Grandpa didn't trust the banks. Yours is probably a hardware wallet like Ledger. It was super cool, uh, David. It was actually, I think it was last week before, um, MetaMask support for, there was a new Chrome update mm -hmm. and MetaMask support with a Ledger was actually disabled, didn't work, mm -hmm. but you could actually still use Ledger using Ledger Live. And that was sort of a, a um, another mechanism, another way of using the Ledger that uh, I hadn't used as much before, but Ledger Live is uh, super cool. It is a, a, a piece of software put out by Ledger Hardware mm -hmm. and they've added so much more to it probably since the last time you checked all of these crypto services. So you can buy, sell, exchange, lend, and stake all the verbs. getting into DeFi services, all the, money verbs. all the money verbs, all through Ledger Live. So that's super cool. Um, yeah. What else should we talk add with Ledger, David? Yeah, it's it, there's a lot of new uh, people subscribing to Bankless and coming into the world of Banklessness of crypto. Uh, and Ledger is has always been the easiest hardware wallet to use, uh, and they also have now a bunch of backend software uh, 
uh, to live a bankless life inside of the, the Ledger ecosystem. So it's a great uh, you know, first stepping stone into a very complicated world that packages up all the DeFi services into a very nice interface along with the top tier security of an actual hardware wallet. Not your, not your keys, not your crypto, um, but then also Ledger and its partners allows you to do all the money verbs that we talk about on the Bankless program. So check Ledger out. If you don't have one, go to bankless.cc slash Ledger, check that out. Or also, if you have a Ledger, start checking out the Ledger live application. David, I'm going to ask you the question I ask at the beginning of every single state of the nation since we started these things. That is, what is the state of the nation today? The state of the nation is expanding. Uh, in the Market Monday piece that I put out uh, yesterday, I used this metaphor, this risk metaphor. If you've ever played the game of risk, it's a game where you have different territories and you have like different armies positioned around the borders and you try and claim the next border. Bitcoin just claimed El Salvador. Uh, and so it is now <laughs> instantiated America. in the risk board, you know, an orange country, El Salvador. Uh, and the, the question that we have for, for Nick Carter is, where does Bitcoin go next? Where does it expand next? Uh, I'm getting like kind of I, con, like flashbacks, not flashbacks. I never was alive back in the 70s or 80s, but like of the of the Cold War with the USS versus Russia and like the USS, containment strategies. Yeah, the US like think of the perspective from the dollar trying to contain Bitcoin, right? And so we you mm. know we got Bitcoin advancing out of El Salvador. We got the dollar trying to contain it. Um, but it, you know if El Salvador falls, you know what about Costa Rica? What about Panama? What about the other dollarized countries? of Latin America. Like, is this the dollar, the, the, dom the Bitcoin domino effect about to happen? Uh, and so Bitcoin is expanding and it's, it's claimed El Salvador and who knows what happens next. What's so interesting is in order to claim like countries uh, and territories in a game of risk, you have like soldiers and, you know, cannons and that sort of thing. But Bitcoin is doing this without soldiers, without an army. It's just doing this through idea propagation, essentially. So this is a super important story. I think in the we, we call this historic. This is absolutely on every single timeline of like you know, 20th century, 21st century evolution of money, the date June 2021 will be there because that is the date that the first nation state actually adopted a cryptocurrency as legal uh, tender. And like, we're here for it. Mm -hmm. So guys, stick around for this fantastic conversation. We're going to introduce Nick Carter in just a minute, but we want to thank the sponsors that made this episode possible first. Synthetix is Ethereum's decentralized derivatives liquidity protocol. What does that mean? Synthetix is a platform for creating and trading synthetic assets, which are assets that are priced via an oracle rather than bids or asks. Traders can use the Quenta exchange, which hosts and trades all of the synthetic assets created by Synthetix. Traders on Quenta can trade synthetic tokens like SBTC, SOIL, or SDFI. Because Quenta is powered by synthetics, traders experience zero slippage on their trades. No, I didn't mean low slippage, I meant no slippage, because that is the power of the synthetics platform. No slippage on your trades. You can also easily short assets with iSynths, which are synthetic assets that move inversely to their target asset. Synthetics isn't just for traders, developers can build on synthetics to access the infinite liquidity offered by synthetic assets, or investors can stake collateral to the protocol and earn fees that the protocol collects. If you're a trader and you're looking for a trading platform not found in the legacy world, check out quenta.io. If you're a developer or you just want to earn yield on your collateral, go to www.synthetics.io where you can stake your SNX or ETH and earn fees from synthetics. 
Aave is a borrowing and lending protocol on Ethereum and just recently released Aave version 2, which has a ton of cool new features that makes using Aave even more powerful. With Aave, you can leverage the full power of DeFi, Money Legos, Yield, and Composability all in one application. On Aave, there are a ton of assets that you can deposit in order to gain yield, and all of those same assets can also be borrowed from the protocol if you have deposited collateral. Here you can see me getting a 200 USDC loan against my portfolio of a number of different DeFi tokens and ETH. I'll choose a variable interest rate because it's a lower rate than the stable interest rate option, but I could choose the stable interest rate option if I wanted to lock that interest rate in permanently. One of Aave's V2 features is the ability to swap collateral without having to withdraw your assets, trade them on Uniswap, and then deposit them back into Aave. Aave does all of this for you all in one seamless transaction, so you don't have to repay loans in order to change the collateral you have backing them. Check out the power of Aave at Aave.com. That's A-A-V-E.com. Hey guys, welcome back. Super excited to dig into this with Nick Carter, fourth time on the show. He is a partner at Castle Island, a recurring guest on Bankless. We've called him our favorite Bitcoiner. I think you heard us say this. So Nick Carter, you are our favorite Bitcoiner that we have on Bankless. And you are really at the center of this whole El Salvador thing. So welcome, man. We're super excited to talk to you about it. Thank you. And thanks for making me your official favorite Bitcoiner. That means a lot. <laughs> <laughs> fourth yeah. time on the show too i know it's been a really long time since i was last on though it has been it's been like months you know we were talking about this uh it's been 11 months it feels like it was mm -hmm. way sooner but like so much has happened including the adoption of bitcoin by a country which is the subject of today i want to ask the question of like um this feels like a big milestone to me i know some people say look el Salvador is not that big but like it is a nation state it is a country adopting Bitcoin. Did you think this would happen in 2021? Or like, what was your like mental date for the milestone when this type of thing would happen? Yeah, I mean, I'm like, delusionally bullish Bitcoin at all times. So, <laughs> you know. Spoken like a true Bitcoiner. <laughs> um, so I sort of always expect the best possible thing to happen immediately. Um, so I speculated on my own podcast about, you know, the, the first sovereign country to like truly adopt Bitcoin, but I thought it was going to be like Norway or Singapore or something yeah. like a really, you know, like, I don't know how to describe it, but just a country that, you know, understand, you know, really deeply understands like sovereign wealth and like, I mean, Singapore already kind of has exposure to Bitcoin through Temasek, I think. Um, but yeah, I, I didn't think it'd be El Salvador. I didn't think we'd get a legal tender law. I didn't think we would get um, actually a, a, like a legal tender mandate as in like merchants are mandated to accept Bitcoin. That was far, far more than I expected. What I thought was that sovereigns would start um, buying it. Just com yeah, converting some of their foreign exchange reserves into Bitcoin. Uh, but this is different, completely different and um, very unexpected. But yeah, kind of on the timeline I was expecting. But again, I'm, you know, I'm like super like delusional about this stuff. So. Okay, but so like so we're pretty delusional about crypto too, right? So like I don't think people have ever listened to a bankless podcast that wasn't bullish, like crypto in some way. But is is this? Did we did we overhype this in the intro a little bit? Like so, my my question is like this seems like a pretty major historic event here, right? Is there is there is is everything going to be different? 
from here on out. Like there was a before a sovereign country adopted Bitcoin as legal uh, uh, tender, and then there's an after. Do you think it's that much of a change agent, or is this just a another you know, like piece of the evolution of global adoption? No, one hundred percent. This is, I would say, one of the most pivotal points in Bitcoin's history. Um, and on a par with like when Bitcoin first monetized with that Bitcoin pizza transaction. So this is at that scale of importance. Um, and I say that because like first Bitcoin was this like, you know, empty like ledger slots that had no value and then it obtained value. And then it was a collectible or like a synthetic commodity. So it was sort of monetizing, but it wasn't explicitly money in like the sense that an economist like George Selgin would describe it as money, which is a generally accepted medium of exchange. It wasn't generally accepted. And then by decree, by law, it became um, a literal money <laughs> uh, in a you know entire country. Um, and that's the first time anything like that has happened. So yeah, I think it's absolutely, absolutely pivotal. Um, of course, like, you know, like from a, just from like a narrative sense, of course, like, does that mean that, you know, millions of more people are actually going to adopt Bitcoin? No. But in terms of like the taxonomy of money, it like it's transcended into this new category now. Let's talk about just keep harping on the, the significance of this really quick, um, because let, let's just, just uh, imagine you're talking to somebody that is, you know, they, they've heard of Bitcoin, but uh, other than hearing about it, they don't really know what it is. And you're trying to explain to them the significance of El Salvador or any country really adopting Bitcoin as currency. How would you explain it to someone who is just, you know, doesn't really understand what crypto as a whole is trying to explain it to from that perspective? I mean, effectively, we had uh, El Salvador had a dollarized uh, monetary system, which meant that effectively dollar was the currency of the land. I believe they actually do also in tandem have a local currency, but it's just been kind of irrelevant for a long time. Uh, in parallel to that, now there's a, an additional monetary system, which is legal, where Bitcoin is on an even kind of uh, par with uh, you know dollar from a legal perspective. So from a tax perspective in terms of the tax treatment of transactions, uh, in terms of actually paying your taxes, in terms of being the accepted and legal uh, tender for the settlement of debts, um, and in terms of merchants having an obligation to accept this. So in every conceivable way uh, in this country, assuming this law you know, actually gets implemented and things like that, um, you're going to look at Bitcoin being elevated to the same you know, level of significance um, in terms of uh, you know, your legal um, rights and obligations with respect to the medium. So effectively, uh, now El Salvador is on this dual monetary standard, dollars on one hand, Bitcoin on the other. So it's been elevated to sort of an equivalent status. One of the big deals here is that El Salvadoran citizens don't have to pay capital gains tax on their Bitcoin. Can you fit that into the story as well? Yeah, so in the US, Bitcoin is taxed as property and actually all cryptocurrencies, crypto assets. And so that means that when you make a transaction, you purchase something with Bitcoin, the tax code interprets that as a sale and you are then taxed on the difference between when you acquired that Bitcoin and the value of it when you sold it. So you have to keep track of that. 
and then you have to pay a short or long-term capital gains tax, which is an enormous hurdle. And that's actually really how uh, you know countries like the U.S. maintain this monetary hierarchy with stuff like tax treatment. There's no like explicit law saying you know the dollar has to be worth something, and you know the dollar is like sacrosanct. In practice, what we have is um, you know a, a bundle of like laws um, and sort of processes which you know, encourage the dollar to have value and sort of instill it with value. Um, and tax treatment is, you know, paramount among them. Uh, and that's how other foreign currencies and foreign assets and things like that are disempowered at the expense of the dollar. So eliminating that um, tax hurdle and that just friction through tax, that's a really, really key thing in sort of elevating Bitcoin to sort of this egalitarian status. Yeah, I, I think people totally forget this. Like, you know, I've said this uh, a few times because I believe it's true and I've heard others say it, but like, um, I think the worst UX for crypto is actually in the tax code, right? So like there, there have been moves even in the US to sort of pass some safe harbor sorts of legislation that say under a certain amount of crypto you spend per year, say that's not like taxes, capital gains, it's more taxes as a currency is money, but that's never gotten anywhere. I think people forget that like countries don't have to make something like cryptocurrency illegal. All they really have to do is make it majorly inconvenient through their existing uh, legislative processes. And right now using cryptocurrency for anything other than a store of value is like majorly inconvenient just because of the capital gains tax codes. Like, so he, he, here's a here's a for instance, right? So, uh, according to the tax code, every time you make a transit transaction on Ethereum, pay some gas, right? There's a capital gains event there, right? Like it, it could be small, it could be like you know you know very very de minimis, but like that's UX friction. I mean, I'm paying a few dollars in Ethereum gas, and there's a there's a capital gains tax event on there, and I have to track that. Um, so yeah, plus one on your point there is countries with their existing tax code already make the UX of cryptocurrency very difficult without even having to make it illegal. Yeah, I I just wanted to throw in here that I wrote about this for your newsletter actually. Uh, back in the day, uh, crypto fiat, mutualistic or parasitic. And I specifically talk about the implicit and explicit, explicit privileges of the dollar and sovereign fiat relative to all other near monies. And, you know, crypto is like a near money, like it has value. People treat it like a money, but it lacks a lot of these explicit uh, privileges. Uh, and the, the tax treatment is, is like probably the most important one. You see now why Nick Carter is our favorite Bitcoiner because uh, you know he even refers to past bankless issues as he's making his points. Here's the article uh, that he mentioned. Oh, you guys have it. So. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So you scroll down. I literally enumerate the dollar's explicit privileges and then like the uh, you know something. It's funny. Like there's stable coin. There's so many more stable coins today as opposed to yes. like this. Um, what was the size back then? This was uh, this is from December twenty. Oh, May twenty twenty. May twenty twenty. Uh, so here, ten, we're, we're at ten billion. x from here, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, just about. Yeah, that's crazy, insane. So but yeah, so there's there's implicit and like you know these emergent features like the fact that you know if you want to participate in like U.S. securities markets, you need dollars, like stuff like that. So mm -hmm. there's like the very explicit stuff and there's the implicit stuff. 
implicit stuff. And then El Salvador has, you know, worked on the explicit side, obviously TBD on, you know, what happens though. Right. So Nick, uh, let's get into the background of President uh, Naib Bukele. Uh, and you know, since he hopped into your Twitter spaces, I can only assume that you guys are friends now. Uh, what have you <laughs> learned about uh, President Naib before this event, right? Like bef before that, this, the, uh, the announcement went, went public that um, El Salvador was going to put forth a bill that would ratify Bitcoin as legal tender. Uh, where do you think Bitcoin entered in President Naib's life? Like, how how did he become uh, pro Bitcoin? Do you know anything about the backstory here? That's a great question. I believe that it had a lot to do with Bitcoin Beach, which is this kind of like nonprofit um, uh, initiative designed to encourage people to transact with Bitcoin um, in this specific beach town in El Salvador, and I. I had heard of a lot of Bitcoiners going down there. Like my friend Miles Suter had spent a ton of time down there with Jack Mallers. Um, I believe Peter McCormack was down there. I actually thought about going long before I knew anything was going on from a monetary perspective, just because I thought it was cool. I think it's called El Zante. Um, and apparently the merchants there accept um, lightning transactions and stuff like that. I haven't been, so I can't really you know talk about it um, with that much detail. But my understanding is that is probably how the president bukele you know first kind of you know got turned on to bitcoin but i mean he could have learned about it from anywhere <laughs> frankly mm -hmm. i mean from the internet uh he's like super plugged in he's a very uh very like tech savvy president i mean um a lot of people compare him to aoc in terms of um his level of like online reach and like how active he is on social media and stuff like that um so he's it wouldn't surprise me if he had you know like learned about it on reddit or whatever like the same way i did the uh the bitcoin beach uh that actually really really fits well into my whole risk metaphor because bitcoin literally established a beachfront in el salvador <laughs> a beachhead, <laughs> a beachhead yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah this is bitcoin's normandy that's right right yeah okay so so not only is president nayeb a believer in bitcoin but he also kind of seems to be a straight up bitcoiner like the guy's got laser eyes man like he speaks like a bitcoiner have, have you noticed these qualities about him as well I mean, he cottoned on to the Bitcoin discourse very quickly and like understood even in his spaces conversation with us, he, he seemed to be, uh, you know, repeating a lot of these like Bitcoinery type phrases. Um, mm -hmm. So, I mean, he clearly spent a lot of time with Bitcoiners, um, you know, prior to going public with this announcement and passing this law and stuff. So it's pretty interesting to, he to see a head of state. So plugged in to like the Bitcoin community and its narratives really, and stuff like that. It's really interesting, Nick, you compare him to like AOC because like I just looked up his age, he's 39. I think that like barely fits as a, a millennial. So he's like a an elder yeah. millennial on that end of the spectrum, right? And like, I mean, millennials, Gen Z, this very much seems to be sort of the the digital generation here. And the, the way that he interacted um, with the Bitcoin community, assumed the culture, like joined your Twitter spaces, that like that's a whole social media savvy that you don't see very often uh, in U.S. politicians anyway. But like, I'm I'm curious as to why you think he proposed this bill, and uh, should remind folks too, the El Salvadorian Congress voted overwhelmingly in favor of this bill as well. I think it was like 62 
out of 84 total votes voted in favor. So it wasn't just the executive branch, the legislative branch actually voted in favor of it. But like, what were the reasons it was proposed and why was this so favorable, seen as so favorable by the legislative branch? Yeah, I mean, he, he enjoys enormous popularity. He's probably one of the most popular uh, world leaders domestically, something like a 90% approval rating. Um, uh, one of the uncertainties was whether they would get a majority or a supermajority with the passage of this bill. Um, they announced to us on that spaces as the vote was happening that they got a supermajority. Um, which was crazy to hear the <laughs> like the votes roll in live on this audio chat. Um, but yeah, I believe his party controls the the legislature. Um, you know, so they had the equivalent of like a blue wave over there. Um, I, I mean, I don't know if like you would describe his party as blue or red, um, not to like put it under an American lens. But yeah, um, they have overwhelming like legislative support. So it's not like that surprising necessarily uh, that, you know, his bill passed. Um, but yeah, it, 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 the crazy thing is just the speed of execution. I mean, the text of the bill is released on, or the announcement was on Saturday. They released the text of the bill on Tuesday and then hours later voted on the bill. Uh, and the, the boat, vote concluded at 2 a.m. Uh, you know, Eastern time. So they actually had this midnight session in Congress, which was crazy. Um, and I actually think I said on the spaces, I would be complaining if I, you know, were a legislator and I had to read <laughs> and understand this bill in like 30 minutes and then vote on it. Right. So we've talked about why this event is significant from the Bitcoin perspective, but let's talk about why this event is significant from the El Salvadoran perspective. Why is this good for El Salvador? Why? What was the incentive for President Naib to propose this bill? What was the incentive for Congress to, uh, to ratify it? And why is this good for El Salvadoran citizens? Why do they think that this is good for the country? So... Like, honestly, the jury's out whether this will be good for regular old uh, El Salvadoran citizens. Um, and uh, I want to be honest about that. Like, we don't know. Um, most of them are not Bitcoiners, obviously. I mean, like, the Bitcoin penetration worldwide is, like, single-digit percents. So with the reaction I've seen from Salvadorans has mostly been confusion. Um, you know, like, what is Bitcoin? How did this parallel, you know, internet currency come to be a, a you know tender of the land um you know am i going to have to use bitcoin to buy things um so that's been like the main reaction that i've seen um obviously salvadoran bitcoiners are super pumped about it uh but you'd have to assume they're not the majority of the population um so we'll see like we'll see um the fact that article 7 makes um acceptance of bitcoin for merchants mandatory that to me is very different from uh just ratifying bitcoin as a legal tender that is optional that's different because at that point you move from elevating bitcoin um, and eliminating frictions and you move to potentially adding frictions because not every merchant is going to have the facility or the technological means to accept bitcoin it's not like Bitcoin merchant tools are ubiquitous in Latin America. They're certainly not. Um, there's definitely startups that are like trying to solve this, but uh, it, it, it's far-fetched to imagine that every you know taco stand or supermarket or small business 
has the means to actually accept Bitcoin. So I'm very curious as to see what that rollout is going to look like. I believe the law goes into effect in 90 days and whether that's going to be enforced too. Nick, was um, there like an exception if merchants didn't have the technical capability to accept Bitcoin? There was sort of like this carve out, this exception? Uh, well, they created this fund called, I think, Bandasol, which is a trust fund, which um, apparently will help manage liquidity between dollars and Bitcoin. Um, but yeah, you're right. Actually, I think there might be some language in the bill about that, some link to, like, to the best of their ability. Um, the, it's a very, very short bill. So a lot of it will depend on the actual means of implementation. So again, it's kind of a wait and see thing. So, but, you know, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was like curious, right? So if it's not really for the El Salvadorian people, if they're kind of like mystified, like we're already using a money, and by the way, Bitcoin isn't a great medium of exchange or unit of account anyway, anywhere. I don't even think Bitcoiners would say that it is. Um, but like, it seems like the the Bitcoin case for why a nation state should adopt Bitcoin is um, not being dependent on the uh, monetary sovereignty of another country, right? So like um, El Salvador with US dollars, as its money, as its currency, uh, is very much dependent on, well, what is what is the US's monetary policy? And while interesting, last 12 months, we've had 5% inflation. Maybe that's really 12% inflation uh, in US dollars. We don't know. And the monetary policy is really in the hands of, let's be honest, the elite baby boomers uh, that are like part of kind of the US um, government apparatus, right? So the, the win, I, I would think Bitcoiners would say the win for a nation like El Salvador is you have a credibly neutral monetary system rather than being dependent on another nation states. Is that what you think the president saw in this for his country? I believe so. So I think there's two things going on. So that is my real answer for what I think is happening is that um, it's a beginning of effectively a reprisal against the U.S. for officially dollarized countries to stake out their own monetary sovereignty or to distance themselves a little bit from the Federal Reserve policy, which they're exposed to. Um, now, President Bukele denied this on the Spaces chat when I asked him, which is maybe fair and sort of diplomatic because maybe you don't want to be super explicit about the fact that you sort of intend to de-dollarize long-term um, because, you know, bad things have happened to people who have de-dollarized or like stopped selling oil for dollars. Like uh, Gaddafi tried to get off the dollar standard for the sales of oil. Uh, so did Chavez. Uh, Iran has tried that. Uh, and um, well, plus he Saddam also doesn't probably doesn't want to well. scare his own citizens who are just used to the dollar, right? Like we we can in the back of his mind he can think like maybe this is a five to ten year phase out, maybe faster, maybe slower. Um, but there's no point in just like bringing that up on day one, right? Right. And and this is an incremental step, if that is what he intends to do. Right. Um, you know, first of all, make Bitcoin on an even legal footing with the dollar. Then maybe later on, you know, foreign exchange reserve conversion or, you know, more explicit distancing from the dollar. But here's a very interesting data point, which kind of corroborates this theory. The U.S. actually has threatened El Salvador with sanctions this year, earlier this year, um, when uh, uh, Bukele, I believe certain officials in El Salvador, not state level sanctions, 
some uh Bukele, i think uh fired uh like a lot of the uh jurists like in their uh judiciary and like consolidated power in a certain way and the u.s bristled at this and made some noises about potentially sanctioning you know members of the uh, government in el salvador so my hypothesis and i'm not an expert on this at all um you know i only found out about you know the like politics of el salvador pretty recently my hypothesis is that that might have motivated this so this might be a populist reprisal to the u.s government saying like okay like we're dollarized but like we're going to introduce this other parallel currency so in the case that you do proceed with sanctions we're still going to have this you know alternative you know monetary network that we can tap into if necessary yeah i think people miss that there's like two things that that bitcoin provides right one is like the actual um credible neutral monetary policy against issuance so you're not reliant on the fed but but the second is uh credibly neutral value transmission right so you don't have to use like the swift system that basically the us you know controls uh and can impose sanctions on them so like, there's these two aspects of like we call that in crypto like censorship resistance that you get to benefit from and you're saying it could be both of those potentially it could be either yeah but it's not something you want to come out and say probably probably not probably not but yeah i agree i mean would i be concerned about u.s inflation actually president bukele did make reference to this he made reference to the cantillon effect although he didn't um you know specifically call it out but he described it so he basically said on the spaces that i hosted he said um the U.S. Fed is, you know, like uh, aggressively printing money that's effectively monetizing the debt in the U.S. And those transfer payments are going to Americans. But the entire world bears the liability of inflation. Anyone that's dollarized bears the cost of, you know, very accommodative Fed policy and effectively inflation. But they don't, uh, you know, um, benefit from that issuance. Certainly those transfer payments that are being funded by monetary issuance are not going to Salvadorians, they're going to Americans. And so he did kind of obliquely make reference to this hierarchical system whereby the whole world is exposed to the dollar. But right now it's a very nativist policy in the US where dollar inflation is, you know, mainly benefiting Americans. Nick, one of the um, big topics of conversation uh, in this whole news is the Lightning Network. And also uh, after Bitcoin Miami 2021, the Lightning Network did definitely seem to have a big resurgence in just conversation. Uh, and I, I saw a, a, a tweet from you talking about how one of your big takeaways from the Bitcoin 2021 conference is the maturity of the Lightning Network. And notably, Jack Mahlers, who heads up Zap, was one of the, the um, core liaisons with uh, President uh, Naib and just Bitcoiners, Bitcoinerism. Uh, and, and so there was a direct connection between uh, the El Salvador and the Lightning Network through Jack Mahler's. Do you have any like thoughts or reflections as to how the Lightning Network fits into this story and also like kind of the phase of development that Light the Lightning Network finds itself in at this present moment? Yeah, I mean, the strike story is absolutely central in this, um, you know, Bitcoinization, uh, as some people are calling it, uh, you know, of El Salvador. Jack Mallers was apparently one of the main conduits here to the to the state. Um, and, um, you know, Strike has a lot of usage down there and apparently is growing its user base. 
Now, you know, can uh, non-custodial lightning apps power, you know, an entire country's merchant payments? Like, in theory, there's not really any uh, limit to what, you know, the number of transactions you can do with lightning. Of course, like you need to open and close channels and things like that. Um, could it work? Like, probably, like I see no like technical barrier to that working. Do I think lightning is going to become ubiquitous in El Salvador for like brick and mortar merchant payments? Like definitely not. Um, lightning is complex to reason about, you know, um, these apps are still a little, you know, challenging to use, like, to be clear, like I obviously use lightning a lot, but, um, it's enough to just understand Bitcoin and then, you know, additionally to understand that there's this, you know, overlay network built on top of Bitcoin, you know, that's, that's like a lot of work. Uh, so I don't think lightning will, uh, have ubiquity in El Salvador. Um, but I do think, I agree that it's, it's reached this good stage of maturity where, um, it certainly works. I just, I think people are reasoning about payments wrong. They think, oh, you know, we can build these, uh, you know, crypto blockchain based payment systems that just replace identically replace like plug and play, you know, payment experiences in the real world. I think lightning is much more interesting for like, you know, content monetization on the internet for streaming payments for like brand new payment experiences that weren't possible for not necessarily just replicating these like, you know, old world payment experiences for, for that, like centralized services uh, or like QR code based payments. Like you have, uh, with Alipay, like that seems to make a lot more sense. And if uh, if I'm getting my details correct, the Strike app is actually one of the mechanisms as to how uh, companies can kind of plug into this new this new law of Bitcoin as legal tender while still kind of denominating and thinking in dollars. Uh, because Strike has this um, treasury in the background and they manage risks, so they have a dollar neutral position. And so when El Salvadoran citizens are using Strike, they can actually be sending nominally dollars to each other while it's Bitcoin in the background. Uh, a, are, are those details correct to the best of your knowledge? And is there any more like illumination that you could you could shed on that? Yeah, it's a little opaque to me, you know, like we're not investors in Strike. Um, we've invested in, in, you know, similar uh, countries providing digital dollars to Latin Americans, um, uh, but but not Strike. Um, so I don't have like precise knowledge. I believe there's like some some interplay with Tether, uh, which is like maybe a little perturbing. Um, <laughs> but uh, and that's actually getting a little bit of press. Um, but yeah, I, I believe that's the case. Um, and, um, you know, we'll, we'll see, like, this will be a huge stress test for that entire infrastructure. It's important to me that, you know, e even if there is like a public, uh, as in state created funded sponsored wallet that, you know, people use, uh, or are invited to use that there be private sector alternatives and that, um, there be no restriction on the number of, uh, private sector wallets that people, uh, are allowed to use. Uh, so my hope would be that, you know, there would be a, a, a good number of like non-custodial, semi-custodial, you know, dollar-backed, like private sector wallet experiences that people could use should they want to transact with Bitcoin. Worst case would be like some sort of like custodial government app, which is the only way to make a Bitcoin transaction in the country. Um, or if they gave a license to like one or two wallet companies, um, you know, I don't think that would be optimal. 
it's not optimal, Nick, but is it, would it be that bad? Right. It's like you, you don't have, I mean, we've had this conversation before about like difference between sort of, you know, Ethereum sort of a DeFi vision, which is like maximally bankless at all layers. And then kind of a, a Bitcoin vision, which is, it's got lightning and some non-custodial sort of things, but um, can also scale from a Bitcoin bank perspective. Right. And I think you've advocated for like, Hey, that could be a reasonable way to scale. So long as there is a free, open, private market building on top of Bitcoin as a settlement network and as a, as a monetary network, right? It's like, you can kind of get a Venmo type experience or an Alipay type experience now, if you're willing to give up your private keys and just go custodial, that can work in an app very simply. Do you think that would be the end of the world if it all ends up sort of custodial payment driven in El Salvador? So... Yeah, it's a difficult question because you're right. I do believe that um, you know a hybrid network uh, can be practical and work, whereby you do have um, you know custodial experiences like the same way that we've all used exchanges and Bitcoin banks, crypto banks, uh, things like that. Um, and so I think that can be a very strong complement to you know a base layer which is sensor resistant um, and you know gives you an array of transactional modes. Um, however, in the case of El Salvador, the thing that makes me nervous if this were to end up, um, you know, fully custodial is the government mandate, um, you know, the, the insistence that merchants accept Bitcoin, because then, you know, you're, you're eliminating free choice in currency, uh, which is important, you know, like Bitcoin is ultimately about free choice and about, well, maybe if you are using a custodial service, you can always withdraw your coins. So if the government like ratifies like two or three custodial wallets or says you have to use the state sponsored Bitcoin custodial wallet to do your Bitcoin transactions and merchants have to use the state sponsored custodial wallet, that eliminates the choice in currency to you know, a significant degree. Uh, so I'm, I'm wary of, uh, of you know, a development like that. Like people don't really know this, but in Venezuela, like the, the government has created like Bitcoin like remittance services, as far as I understand, like you can renew your passport and pay for it in Bitcoin or with the Petro. Um, but, you know, I don't think people are really that excited about that or think, it, it, you know, that it necessarily empowers Venezuelans. So there's a big contrast between like the Maduro approach to embracing Bitcoin and, you know, just like the laissez-faire approach. And, you know, I naturally hope that, um, that we get more of the latter rather than the former. So just some numbers really quick. El Salvador is a country of 6.5 million people. And for, for context, that puts El Salvador right behind Maryland as the biggest state um, and right above Indiana, 17th largest. And it's uh, as a GDP, as a country, it's the 101st largest GDP country in the world. So, you know, very rel relatively small country, relatively modest. Um, but still, for Bitcoin, it's a, it's a whole entire country. And so to me, this is... This is like Bitcoin's biggest test, right? We get to ask and hopefully answer the question, do 6.5 million people want to use Bitcoin when the barriers for using Bitcoin are their lowest in the world, right? Is the Lightning Network actually suitable to help facilitate this growth and adoption and help uh, just grow usage of Bitcoin as a utility? To me, this is like Bitcoin's make it or break it moment where we kindly kind of find out like, 
does does people actually want Bitcoin? Um, is that kind of how you see this event as well? Uh, it's. <laughs> I don't know if I want to put so much pressure on the people of El Salvador, you know, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I mean, I, it's going to be very, very interesting to see how this plays out. There's a lot of ways it, it could go terribly wrong from a narrative perspective uh, for Bitcoin. Um, but it does mean that every economist now has to concede that Bitcoin is legal tender in at least one jurisdiction. So to me, that's like the strongest thing is that it just signals Bitcoin's progression to a new phase of life. Now, do I actually expect six million also, you know, Salvadorans to use Bitcoin in day-to-day -day payments? Absolutely not. Like, I think usage will still be pretty de minimis. I think the relevance of Bitcoin is chiefly like attracting crypto entrepreneurs to the country. You know, attracting capital inflows. That seems to be a big part of what Bukele is interested in. And then more long-term, um, potentially kicking off a, a de-dollarization or at least. Um, diversifying the set of monetary networks that El Salvador is exposed to. Um, and, you know, they're not the first country to do that. Like Iran has already kind of explicitly said, like, we're, you know, looking at the Bitcoin network in terms of like a way to settle international, you know, trade uh, payments, you know, things like that. Uh, Venezuela also apparently has like state-sponsored Bitcoin mining. So, El Salvador is actually continuing this trend started by pariah states. What's interesting is they're the first non-pariah state, the first like sort of state that's actually part of the international community to do this. But yeah, that's the, that's the big trend is like actually at the state level, I think, um, you know, like diversifying their monetary exposure. That's interesting you say like um, El Salvador is the first non-pariah state to start doing this, right? Although you did mention that it has kind of gotten in trouble uh, in the past with maybe uh, the U.S. government and some of the choices with, um, with with this most recent president. But like, I guess this is another way at which Bitcoin is being stress tested, right? So this could be, as David said, Bitcoin's biggest test. And you have to wonder if it's also a test on the nation state level, right? So like the IMF issued something last week um, talking about uh, having to seriously analyze the move of El Salvador, and you wonder if that's kind of tied into uh, a bank loads, loans, and international bank loans, this sort of thing. And you kind of wonder, like the, the analogy Dave and I were talking about in the intro to this is, does this lead to a Bitcoin cold war, right? If we're talking about de-dollarization, which is, this has got to mean de-dollarization to um, the powers that be, right? It's kind of a signal towards that. Um, does the U.S. actually want that? Does the international community want that? Will they take steps to contain it? Will they take steps to sanction it in, in small ways or big ways? How do you think Bitcoin holds up against that? We've always called this the, the final boss, right? But like at some level, Nick, I feel like, look, the final boss hasn't really been paying attention to crypto at all over the last 12 years. It's just like this sideshow. Okay, geeks, yeah, you have your internet money, cool. Uh, not really a threat, too volatile to be a threat. Now we have a nation state, a non-pariah nation state that's adopted it. So what are the powers that be going to do? How are they going to react to this? That's the most fascinating part of this whole thing. And I think we've all known, I mean, you guys make this analogy all the time, talking about like the nation, this is the state of the nation, right? Uh, talking about like, you know, blockchain based systems as like a new, like new sovereign collectives, right? So like we've known for a long time now that 
there are geopolitical stakes here and that, um, you know, crypto users are like staking out a new territory that's just not, it's not physical territory, but, um, you know, it's very real in terms of, um, you know, reimagining what their most relevant political affiliation and political unit is, right? So we've known this is happening, but this is just fascinating. It's, a, it's an acceleration of what was happening. Um, and I agree. I think that is going to be really the enormous big test here is to see how the IMF, how the BIS, and obviously just like how the U.S. like policy establishment is going to react to this. Um, I think a lot of Latin American countries that have this kind of historical trauma from IMF intervention and from like sort of imperialistic U.S. Uh, policy and meddling and supporting coups and things like that, they're not that happy with being vassal states of the U.S. Uh, we all know that the Washington consensus, like the, the U, like system of institutions the U.S. set up after World War II, is declining in stature. That's a fact. Um, China has set up their alternatives. You know, so now you have the Belt and Road Initiative. China has more um, you know, bilateral trade with more countries than the U.S. does right now. So you know, there's like a neo-Cold War there. But what Balaji said on the space was fascinating. He said El Salvador could be the first in this new non-aligned movement. Because if you remember in the Cold War, in the first world, which was just Western countries that are affiliated with capitalism in the U.S., the second world, which was Soviet states, and then you had the so-called third world, and that was used to refer not to their level of development, but to their alignedness, to who politically they were aligned with. And they had chosen to not be aligned with either side. And I find Balaji's reasoning on this incredibly compelling. So you've got the dollar system and you have to opt into the, you know, the UN, the IMF, the World Bank, uh, you know, the WTO, uh, things like that. And, and that tends to come with like, if you can get that capital inflow into your country, it comes with stipulations, you know, become a free market democracy, uh, you know, like, um, except Adopt the trade. dollar. Adopt the dollar, expose yourself to, you know, the, you know, that, that discretion of like, expose yourself to the risk of being, you know, beholden to the, to the dollar infrastructure, which clears through one node in New York, you know, and so that comes with stipulations, there's strings attached. On the other hand, you have like the Chinese model, which is probably except, you know, the Sino CBDC, the, the digital renminbi, um, you know, it's a pretty like exploitative model, frankly, if you look at the way China uh, interfaces with a lot of its trade partners. Um, but yeah, you know, maybe uh, we'll give you this nice package of, of investment, we'll build bridges and we'll sell, you know, your president surveillance technology uh, and we'll give you, you know, this, this, this payment system bundled. So like there's an emerging Chinese alternative too, but then maybe this is a third way. Maybe this is a third way. You know, you have a monetary network where you're not exposed to Beijing, you're not exposed to Washington. You can store value outside of the confines of those two systems. You can transact outside of those two systems. And you can attract this capital base of sort of crypto entrepreneurs, you know, uh, crypto natives, digital nomads. Uh, and, you know, maybe that can be like the alternative in terms of foreign direct investment. Uh, and so I think, President Bukele is kind of signaling that he wants a third way. I mean, he could have, you know, subjugated them, you know, their, their country to, to Chinese influence uh, or remained in, you know, the tight, you know, U.S. circle with the IMF and like the various other 
you know, international institutions. But this is potentially a signal that there's a third way here. Uh, and that's one of the most fascinating things I've, I've you know, come across in a long time. This is super fascinating, right? So you've got the US, the first way, China, the second way, now this third way, which is adopting cryptocurrency. And this is kind of like the crypto domino theory. And maybe El Salvador is just kind of the first domino to fall. What, what other uh, countries are next, do you think? Is it going to happen in uh, Latin America, for instance? I've, I've heard some murmurings from like, you know, Mexico and, and some other, you know, Latin American countries about this. Is this where the next domino falls? We don't know, but a lot of policymakers that have, you know, witnessed this and then immediately signaled their own affinity for Bitcoin are in Latin America. I won't enumerate them all, but, you know, you're talking about Ecuador, Colombia, Argentina, Brazil, Mexico, uh, Panama, like policymakers, representatives, politicians in all those countries have made noises about Bitcoin laws. You've also seen, you know, governors of states in places like Texas and Florida, uh, you know, expressing kind of pro crypto views. But I think like your most likely candidates would be already dollarized nations, because these are places that already don't have the monetary uh, independence, right? So they're not giving anything up. Um, so already dollarized nations um, that maybe feel similarly to El Salvador, they feel uh, hard done by historically, in terms of the influence of the United States. Um, and so, and, and where remittances are, you know, pretty material as well in terms of inflows uh, with the theory that, you know, Bitcoin-based remittances are maybe more efficient. Uh, I guess that kind of remains to be seen whether that's true or not. So you might be looking at, um, you, know, you know, Panama is a dollarized country um, uh, officially. Uh, Costa Rica is a unofficially dollarized country, but if you've been to Costa Rica, you know, you can transact with dollars there. Um, actually, they tend to Merchants there ask for dollars and they give you back the sucre, I think. Um, so you get the soft money back. Here, take my liability. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, that would be an interesting one. I think Ecuador, Ecuador had their own CBDC back in 2015. Nobody knows that. Um, they, uh, they didn't really succeed. It was kind of tether-like, uh, had some issues. Um, but Ecuador had this spontaneous bottom-up dollarization that I talk about a lot. There's some good papers on that by Larry White. Um, so those are maybe my three choices for like, if this is to continue to happen in Latin America, I would actually expect to see it from maybe one of those countries. So historically, we have not seen good things happen to countries that deny or reject the dollar. Uh, America tends to invade these countries. Um, uh, I mean, th this was what all of this was what Vietnam was. This was what all of the Cold War was. Um, we've we've supported multiple coups in, in Latin America. So it's not like out of the question for us to look at, you know, good old Uncle Sam and like the, the hegemony of the dollar and say like, oh, like what's going to happen next? The difference between the 70s and 80s Cold War and the other coups that in the America and the CIA has sponsored in, in Latin America is that this time, it's that there is a cohort of Bitcoiners inside of America, right? It's, it's not communism. It's not, it's not whatever that mess was. This is Bitcoiner. And, and Bitcoin is a global network with a global community. And that global community is, is very significantly domiciled inside of the United States. How do you see the, this dynamic really changing out this version of the future that we see coming, for, um, coming to, toward us? 
Yeah, I mean, like the U.S. Empire's military adventurism has not been popular for two decades now. Um, you know, the Iraq War, like there were significant protests around that. The Iraq War had no justification for it. It was based on a contrivance, a lie. And, you know, after the fact, we now learn that it was probably more to do with up upholding this oil for dollars, um, you know, trade, which keeps the dollar afloat, or at least policymakers thought it kept the dollar afloat. Um, and that was probably, you know, the primary justification for the Iraq War. You know, it, it now today, looking back on it, everybody, virtually everyone would say it's, it was a waste of money and, you know, a pointless conflict. So, you know, does the American people have the appetite for more military adventurism to support a fraying dollar standard that doesn't even work for regular Americans? Like the, the, the you know, the Federal Reserve policy has created enormous inequality, which is equivalent you know, in magnitude to, you have to go back to like the 1920s to find inequality that bad. Um, so I don't think, you know, most Americans have any allegiance really to the, to the dollar system. It doesn't work for most Americans. So would they really support, you know, a military uh, expedition to, you know, reinsert the dollar in these countries that are just peacefully opting out of it? I don't think you, you would find that level of popular support. Um, so I'm not sure that, um, that, that the dollar system has the credibility to attract, um, you know, that level of a popular mandate. And yeah, as, as you say, there's probably 30 to 40 million Bitcoiners in the U.S. alone. So it's like an enormous demographic and they're all going to be sympathetic to the Salvadorians. Yeah, I've always uh, I, I think it's it's pretty easy to to say without evidence that in 2020, the global population very much has a distaste for violence these days. We're too global of a too global of a population to really accept that anymore. Nick, there, there's a number of conversations that we want to get to. And we also want to bring in like the perhaps the Ethereum or non Bitcoiner perspective uh, to this whole debate um, and, and uh, as well as a few other things, as well as a, a, a article from the uh, Mises Institute as well, which had a critique on this move by El Salvador. So we're going to get to those conversations. But first, a moment to talk about some of these fantastic sponsors that make this show possible. Bankless is proud to be supported by Uniswap. Uniswap is a new paradigm in asset exchange infrastructure. Instead of a cumbersome order book system where trades are matched with other humans, Uniswap is an autonomous piece of software on Ethereum, which is what Ryan and I call a money robot. No human counterparties or centralized intermediaries, just autonomous code on Ethereum. Input the token you want to sell and receive the token you want to buy. Something brand new in the Uniswap ecosystem is the Uniswap Grants program is now accepting applications for grants. We have been saying this for a while and we'll say it again. DAOs have money and they are in need of labor. If you think that you have something to contribute to the Uniswap DAO, apply for a grant to Uniswap. Just look at the size of the Uniswap treasury. It's almost $3 billion. This mountain of capital is looking for labor. Do you have something of value to contribute to the Uniswap DAO? No matter how big or small your idea is, you can apply for a uni grant at unigrants.org and help steer Uniswap in the direction that you think it should go. That's exactly what we did to get Uniswap to be a sponsor for Bankless, and you can do the same for your project. Thank you, Uniswap, for sponsoring Bankless. Gemini is the world's most trusted cryptocurrency exchange. I've been a customer of Gemini since I first got into crypto in 2017, and it's been my main exchange of choice to make my crypto buys and sells. 
Gemini is available in all 50 states and in over 50 countries worldwide. And on Gemini, there are markets for over 30 various different crypto assets, including many of the hot DeFi tokens. And it's one of the few exchanges that has liquid die markets. Gemini just launched their Earn program, where you can earn up to 7.4% interest on 26 various crypto assets. If you're tired of paying fees in DeFi, or you don't want to worry about DeFi exploits, but you still want to earn interest on your crypto assets, Gemini Earn is the product for you. Another product I'm stoked to get my hands on is the Gemini Crypto Back Credit Card, which gives you 3% cash back on all of your purchases, but paid to you in your preferred crypto asset. When I get my Gemini credit card, I'm going to make sure that I get my cash back in ETH. So whenever I buy something, I get a little bit of ETH bonus back to me at the same time. You can open up a free account in under three minutes at gemini.com slash go bankless. And if you trade more than $100 within the first 30 days after sign up, you'll be gifted a free $15 Bitcoin bonus. Check them out at gemini.com slash go bankless. All right, guys, we are back with Nick Carter talking all about El Salvador and Bitcoin. And the, the first half of the show was all about information and, and, and bullishness about Bitcoin. And the, in the second half of the show, we're going to bring up some of the critiques that we've heard. And I think the uh, first critique that I, I, I really resonated with was from the Mises Institute, which wrote an editorial. And I thought the conclusion was worth bringing up here. They, they wrote, hopefully El Salvador is on a path to a more prosperous future. It's long-suffering people surely deserve as much. For that, new ideas are needed. But an oily Keynesian president with slick American advisors, question mark, that's nothing new, not even when they put their plans in modern language about Bitcoin and put laser eyes on Twitter account. If the president really wants monetary freedom for El Salvador, he should not have presented them with what was effectively a government handout for Bitcoin holders and the companies behind the strike app and other potential intermediaries. Instead, he should have simply repealed existing legal tender provisions and announced that the people would be free to use whatever medium they prefer for their transactions transactions. Uh, Nick, how, how do you feel about this take from, from the Mises Institute? Yeah, no, I'm sympathetic to that take. I mean, it's cool to see a nation state ratifying Bitcoin and making it legal tender, but I am, you know, fundamentally <laughs> skeptical of state power, right? That's like my stance on all this stuff. Um, and I am not a fan of state mandates regarding currency. I, you know, think that ultimately uh, you get the best, um, you know, consumer product um, if there is a free and open choice. Um, and so Salvadorans are not exactly being presented with a choice here um, because of this, uh, this merchant mandate. Um, so I think, uh, yeah, a better way would be, uh, you know, eliminate, um, you know, the, the like the legal tender provisions as the Mises Institute says. So like, certainly like this is exciting, but it's not without its drawbacks. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I wish that the language of the law wasn't as focused on like enforcing certain types of behavior, um, but rather on, you know, eliminating hurdles. Although I guess all of that said, if you do want to foster a new monetary network effect, maybe you need uh, some like encouragement to get it started. Um, but again, I don't actually see why you would necessarily strictly want a whole country to Bitcoinize. I mean, I'm, you know, if it is happening organically, great, but is there a need? Is there a policy need to accelerate it? I don't see a need. You know, in the first half, Nick, we were talking about the reasons that President Naib like adopted Bitcoin and pushed uh, so ardently for this. And we talked about, you know, maybe the, the, the sunny side of things, which is like monetary independence for my people and a censorship resistant value transmission network that no other sovereign can control. 
and those sound really good but like the tree the the critics perspective would be what if president naive is just another bitcoin holder and wants to pump his bags right like so like he's got laser what eyes. if that is the reason why right so like let's Maybe. be honest we are are all really excited about the upside of crypto and everyone in crypto likes to talk about um value price go up and in fact bitcoin's mantra is number go up he wouldn't be a bitcoiner unless he didn't want number go up is he just trying to pump his bags here well we don't know if he has bitcoin i mean i think it would make more sense to if that was the plan to covertly acquire bitcoin in their state reserves and then make a big song and dance about this whole thing that doesn't appear to have been the way that it happened um it you know it, it seems like through this um this trust uh, liquidity facility, they might acquire some Bitcoin over time, but um, they haven't gone about it in that, in a way, you know, that would suggest, okay, well, we have the financial incentive to make the value of Bitcoin go up. Or rather, they could have extracted more value from it had they planned to do it in that way. Um, so that's the thing that kind of shocked me a little bit. It's like, Making Bitcoin legal tender is like a big deal and it's going to impose like new obligations on your citizens and it might make them a little upset with you, right? So why not acquire Bitcoin in your reserves first and then do that, um, you know, and then provide that sort of PR dividend and, you know, reap the benefits of that. That's the thing that kind of confused me about this whole thing. I thought that there would be like a definite like chronology to it. I'm curious about your take on this uh, too, Nick. So let's say it was the case that uh, President Naib just did this to pump his bags. Maybe he's made some secret purchase, had a lot of Bitcoin, he's a big holder, or maybe he bought in you know, 2012. We don't know. Um, and let's say he did this. Is that is that a bad thing necessarily? Or is this just like, is the second order analysis here that this is ultimately how cryptocurrency and how Bitcoin gets adopted? It's through number go up, it's through read and this is how you build a bottom up store of value asset um there's no really like there's no other way to do it other than this sort of thing so i'm, I'm curious what you think of that second order analysis that even if that's the case maybe that's still good maybe that's how bitcoin propagates yeah that's a very good point and uh i was reflecting on this because i was rereading hayek's denationalization of money which is like funny because we're talking about you know the collision with the nation state and Hayek felt that the best currencies would be price stable, right, relative to some basket of goods and services. And they would actually outcompete other currencies on the basis of that stability. But, you know, reflecting on that, it looks like def deflationary, non-stable, but, uh, you know, like constantly or, you know, over the long term, uh, deflationary currencies are the ones that are winning out, uh, private, deflationary private currencies like Bitcoin. And so maybe Hayek was wrong about that and making these things, you know, deflationary by design by, you know, implementing NGU technology, um, <laughs> <laughs> like maybe that's more viral and more, maybe that's the, like the secret um, to successfully monetizing a new uh, non-state currency from scratch. Uh, so like we celebrate when we see like members of, you know, the Biden administration that disclose they have Bitcoin. Um, like there was a high level official recently, I think, uh, that, that, that did a disclosure. And so that is kind of the way this thing warms its way into society, it, like penetrates every, <laughs> every echelon of society. Um, and then people are positively disposed towards it. It's not that much you can do to stop it. I mean, people are ultimately going to act in their own 
economic interest. Yeah, it's funny. This is not Hayek, but uh, Hasu, uh, whom you also know, made Close this enough. argument. Close you're right. Enough. Close enough. Our, our modern uh, Hayek is Hasu. And he basically made the argument that, hey, all, all crypto communities that are trying to be non-sovereign store of value will converge on a deflationary monetary policy, right? So like we, we see with uh, Ethereum, the uh, Ethereum community is really excited about ultrasound money. Why? It's this convergence, right? And that's how a bottom-up money grows. If you're taking an academic or systemic perspective, you might say, well, actually, you know, 4%, 4.3% annual inflation is actually the, the optimal golden number for a money economy, right? Um, but then you turn around to like the academic, you say, yeah, but like, how do you get it adopted in a decentralized way? Because if that 4.3% inflation money is competing against a deflationary store of value, it's going to lose. So that's kind of the argument that uh, high yeah, cost you makes. I don't know how you got 4.3%. <laughs> the golden but, number. Arbitrary. Yeah, like, what is it? Like a local local maxima or something, you know? Like, maybe it's not the perfect equilibrium, but it's an equilibrium. Um, exactly. So, like, you know, ultimately, you have to look at it from an evolutionary perspective. What are the, what are the traits that enable, uh, you know, this organism to uh, survive and replicate? And maybe one of those traits that's, uh, you know, conducive to selection or whatever is is like uh, an attractive monetary policy as opposed to just a flat one. Nick, one of the other lines of conversation that I've been hearing go around is uh, uh, President Naib is, has ha, previous flirtations with authoritarianism. He once marched the military into Congress and forced them to sign a bill that would give him like a bunch of like, you know, helicopter tanks and some militia equipment, some surveillance equipment. He also ousted like five uh, judges and the attorney general. And the concern from the Ethereum community, the Ethereum culture towards the Bitcoin community, the Bitcoin culture is that all these Bitcoiners are just over the joy, over the moon enjoyed with um, President Naive and El Salvador adopting Bitcoin when he has a track record that stands for something that is very antithetical to Bitcoin. Uh, how, how does it concern you that there's a uh, some portion of the Bitcoin community that is just like ready to praise President Naib uh, regardless of past actions just because he accepted Bitcoin? Yeah, I think that's a really, really great question. I'm glad you asked it, honestly, um, because it's like a fine line, right? You're trying, you're excited that we're seeing literally nation state adoption of Bitcoin. But at the same time, like no state is perfect. And El Salvador, I think is like, defined as like a troubled democracy or something, um, depending on whom you ask. Like, um, so yeah, I mean, certainly I actually, the, the first time I heard about Bukele was I read an economist story about him long before this happened saying like, there's like a millennial authoritarian in control of El Salvador. Um, and so I tried to, you know, ask him some tough questions on the space. Certainly Alex Gladstein was on there and asked him some t tough questions too. So I like to you know, say that we weren't, you know, hundred percent purely positive and, uh, you know, um, you know, obsequious or whatever, um, that we weren't pure sycophants, but, um, you know, it could certainly look that way to outsiders, uh, that see Bitcoin's cheerleading Bukele. I mean, I haven't like pulled punches, like when I went on Bloomberg and, and also, you know, described him as an authoritarian. So um, I'm, you know, fully aware of like the contradictions there. I think like maybe the synthesis is, you know, we can't stop anyone adopting Bitcoin. 
like whether it's a nation state or a dictator or whatever um already some like pretty questionable places uh you know states have like have some engagement with bitcoin whether it's north korea is believed to be behind a lot of those attacks on exchanges um at the state level um iran venezuela etc and you know that doesn't mean that bitcoiners are like embracing those countries just because they share the same network uh you know i think the point of the network is that there is no moral or political uh, like gating factor you know on like who can do a transaction or whether a transaction is valid unlike you know the dollar network for instance where that absolutely exists and so because bitcoin is intended to be or is you know truly permissionless in its usage you're going to share a network with you know bad people <laughs> and so that's that's why we say money for enemies um i think a lot of people need to remember that uh is that uh yeah like we support you know censorship resistance that also means you have to bite the bullet and say censorship resistance for you know like people that like are, are questionable in some way does this um, does this feed into like elizabeth warren's narrative recent narrative for instance which is like hey like cryptocurrency bitcoin specifically is the money for um, terrorist criminals and rogue nation states. Now here's the first m millennial authoritarian, and no, no big surprise, he's adopted Bitcoin because <laughs> that's what authoritarians like. Uh, does this give that narrative argument more power? Yeah, but you know, you can just flip it on its head and say like the biggest network is the one that has social scalability and uh, doesn't impose any you know, requirements or standards of behavior for those who choose to use it. And in my view, the best money is the one with the biggest network, the most number of nodes in the network. Um, and so that's one reason why I think like Bitcoin will outcompete the dollar ultimately, because the dollar increasingly has all these conditions to like who you have to be and how you have to act to use the dollar network. And the administrators of that network, the node operators, uh, you know, the validators, uh, they are like getting increasingly aggressive in, in you know, uh, imposing those conditions. So, and like Warren is like, she's, she, you know, as far as I can tell, she wants to promote the CBDC and, and use it to, you know, implement her political agenda in society through the means of the money. Um, that doesn't seem too dissimilar from like social credit, frankly, um, or any other like highly surveilled, um, you know, digital money system. Uh, and so, like, in my view, like, I just think organically people will long term be attracted to a network that doesn't have these, um, you know, like political um, mandates built into it, uh, you know, that doesn't really care about who you are, or, like what you believe in. Uh, and, yeah, of course, that's going to include a lot of, um, you know, a lot of rogue nations and, you know, like uh, criminals and things like that. But I, you know, that's I think that's actually the recipe for a successful monetary network. So part of the recipe, I guess, for for DeFi has been, and and you know, um, Nick, the like the bankless kind of thesis on all of this is we love Bitcoin, we think it's fantastic. Uh, we're probably more bullish on Ethereum, and the reason is uh, DeFi, right? So th this sort of um, gives essentially a nation state like El Salvador an entire banking system in a box, where maybe we can get even further in the dream of having a Venmo type experiment experience that's totally peer-to-peer, -peer, right? And you have an entire financial system. And so like a question in the DeFi communities and Ethereum community's mind is, I, we wonder whether this is going to be the gateway to other crypto 
networks, for instance. And if you're doing Bitcoin, I know you're a big advocate of crypto dollars, for instance. Why not crypto dollars on DeFi rails? Uh, it seems like that could be actually a bigger gift potentially to the El Salvadorian people where they get essentially this entire banking network that's digital out of the box. And, and maybe it's going to become one of the, like the best banking network on the planet. It's an internet scale banking network. What are your thoughts on that? Will Bitcoin be the gateway to DeFi for El Salvador or other Latin American countries? Yeah, I guess the question would be, you know, like what does DeFi offer to Salvadorans, you know, that's like really addressable to their lives? And like, you know, early in the episode, I said, like, I actually don't think Bitcoin is that relevant to most Salvadorans. Um, so, you know, taking off my like crypto rose tinted glasses, like ultimately it's like cool to see a nation state adopting Bitcoin. Um, but, you know, is it going to move the needle for your everyday Salvadorian in a really material way? I'm not clear on that. And so I would probably extend that to DeFi. Like, is there a feature of DeFi that would really materially benefit, you know, Salvadorian? Um, I'm not sure, you know, I'd, I'd have to think about that. Well, one thought for you then is like, so 80% of El Salvadorians are bankless. And I don't mean that in the way that we mean it. I mean, they literally have no bank, right? Yeah. And so you, you could imagine something like if Ethereum gets its roll-up ecosystem working, kind of a layer two, you combine sort of a, a mobile type experience with like MetaMask and crypto dollars. And maybe you have a digital uh, bank account, like right out of the gate. Uh, I know there's probably not laptops and this sort of thing, but the mobile phone saturation uh, like might be a bit higher. There might be a way to do that um, as like one potential idea. Thoughts on that? Yeah, no, it's plausible. It's plausible. There's just a lot of work that has to be done primarily around education, I would say, in terms of uh, getting people to understand what it's like to use uh, a digital bearer asset uh, and, you know, the, the responsibilities involved there. Um, so that it, that could well emerge, um, you know, like high yield dollar based savings accounts that are, um, you know, plug into DeFi on the back end. Um, I think that will require like probably intermediaries that look like regular old fintechs um, and uh, and make those experiences totally frictionless. Um, but uh, I think that's probably more of like a medium term outlook. Nick, as we come to a close here, I want to kind of zoom out and have more of a higher level philosophical conversation uh, using this El Salvadorian event as, as context. Uh, one thing that I think has become really obvious to me is the, um, the priority differences between Bitcoiners and Ethereans with how they approach adoption, right? Bitcoin wants to be very, very physical, right? Like the, the risk metaphor of Bitcoin claiming El Salvador like Bitcoin is Bitcoin wants a march through physical territory throughout the world and become, you know, legal or supported tender throughout the world. And you can also see the same sort of interest in, you know, Bitcoin mining, where Bitcoin mining really wants to be hooked into the physical power grid of the physical world. Right. And even within this El Salvador uh, news event, like the, they have plans to literally make a Bitcoin volcano where the Bitcoin integrates with a with a volcano. <laughs> Ethereum is very different. Ethereum has no interest in being the unit of account or legal tender for any sort of nation state. It wants to be the unit of account on the internet, right? Uh, and not only, and it also doesn't want to be instantiated in a proof of work network. It wants to be instantiated in a, in a, a 
Nebulous Online Virtual Proof of Stake Network. How do you how do you do you have any reflections on this cultural divide and and differences in goals for these two different crypto networks? Yeah, that's uh, that's that's really like fascinating way to put it. <laughs> um, the I mean, Bitcoin is to me like Bitcoin isn't just like a digital version of gold. It's like literally synthetic gold. Like I think of it as like the successor like to gold. Um, and so the yeah, these physical analogies make a lot of sense to me. Like you know the way we talk about mining, it's very physical. A lot of Bitcoiners think Bitcoin is literally backed by energy. I don't think that, but a lot of Bitcoiners do. Um, so you're right. It's it's got this kind of like some people describe proof of work as gravity as attaching weight to blocks. So all these physical metaphors do exist. And yeah, I think of it as like following this progression of, uh, of like gold, like this new gold that's like spreading throughout the world and like mostly households and then later investment funds and then later governments, you know, holding some gold the same way, like the, the same distribution that gold has. Um, so I think that's a very apt comparison. And uh, you're right, Ethereum, it, it, it doesn't really aspire to these things. It's, it's completely different. It's a, you know, computational lubricant uh, kind of thing. Um, so yeah, no, I don't have that much to add. That's well put. So Nick, let's project this. Uh, if you can make any sort of crazy projections or predictions for, you know, the next, the, as a result of the repercussions of this particular event, like, what do you, what do you think is the most likely next steps in this story? I think there will be a backlash probably as the law gets implemented and, uh, you know, Salvadorians are like, what the heck is this Bitcoin thing? Like, you know, I lost my channel back up on the Lightning Network or whatever, um, you know, and some like the UX difficulties come to the fore and then the press is going to, you know, go to El Salvador and be like, hey, no one's using Bitcoin. So it was, a, you know, it's like a, a flop or whatever. Uh, I think that's probably pretty likely. I also think the IMF is going to start to say like their assistance is conditional on countries not adopting Bitcoin. So I wow. think we'll see. Some uh, yeah, I think we'll definitely see some backlash from the international development organizations. Um, IMF is is the most important one because they deal with you know short term lending to governments that are troubled. Um, I do think that we'll continue to see sovereign adoption. I think we will see countries adopt Bitcoin in their foreign exchange reserves, not just with legal tender laws. But the most obvious move here for me is uh, diversifying their foreign currency exposure by adding Bitcoin. Bitcoin is now a foreign currency, right? It is the currency of the land in El Salvador. <laughs> they could never take that away from us. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I do think this progression will continue. I think some of the younger politicians that are more forward looking um, will recognize that there's this Bitcoiner demographic, which is spontaneously emerged in their countries and they want to appeal to it. And they won't, the, this bidding war is going to be kicked off between nation states, um, you know, using tax policy as the primary thing to attract like this, like very liquid uh, wealth, uh, you know, which is uh, which has emerged um, and is controlled by like young crypto entrepreneurs, you know, like digital nomads. Like that sovereign individual thesis is real, uh, you know, like it's happening. Bukele was one of the first heads of state to realize it, but he's not going to be the last. So, you know, it's a very exciting time to be, uh, you know, kind of a sovereign individual, uh, you know, like, like to, to the heads of state of the world, like, you know, you're welcome to bid for my, you know, for my presence. <laughs> like, 
I will happily like jo- join Nick know, on Twitter Spaces. Talk about Bitcoin. Ma- make me an offer. Like I'll move to your jurisdiction. You know, <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of us. There's like a hundred million of us now. So we're mobile. We, we we talked about this, Nick. Thank you so much for for joining us on this. This is definitely we've talked about in our Josh Rosenthal episode that this is kind of the crypto renaissance. Like the 2020s are certainly going to be interesting for the sovereign individual. We're glad. You are with us on that journey. Nick, thanks for stopping by and telling us all about this. This has been fun, guys. Really fun. Let's do it in less than a year next time for the yeah, next perfect. episode. And we'll uh, we'll lubricate those gears, get you a bankless t-shirt for next episode, Nick. Uh, guys, risks and disclaimers. First of all, David wanted me to let you know, like and subscribe if you are enjoying this feed. That's how we propagate it to more hearts and minds. This is a battle for hearts and minds nation state versus crypto networks of course risks and disclaimers none of this was financial advice ETH is risky bitcoin is risky all of crypto is DeFi is too you could lose what you put in but we are headed west this is the frontier it's not for everyone but we're glad you're with us on the bankless journey thanks a lot